0: It's interesting what we see in creation. That's interesting what we hear from kids too, but it's interesting what we see in creation dogs and cats, kittens. And I'll never forget that dog running around the garage trying to get away from a cat hanging on his face. And there's a protective instinct in there that is normal. Now, it's normal, it's not always it's 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 normal but it's not always and the fact that that protective instinct that is not only normal in animals but it's normal in humans is normal in humanity and yet it can sometimes go askew it can be it can be twisted or changed and and sometimes maybe its protection of ourselves can overrule the protection of those whom we should be protecting We've been in a study through the book of Philippians, just started it really, and yet I've, I've, I've been waylaid this week. This is one of those weeks that I'm working on my message as normal all through the week and suddenly toward the end of the week, I just cannot escape something else that has arisen as a topic that we've got to speak to, we've got to talk about. And this has been one of those weeks. And um, some things arose in the news that, that, that pressed me in that direction. It kind of started a couple of weeks ago and really kind of blossomed or exploded out into the open this week. And, and, it, and, it, and it started in this way. It started with the governor of New York State um, happily, celebratingly signing into law a new, a new um, law that was passed by the legislator in the state of New York that allows abortion the killing of a baby, all the way up until delivery. All the way up to the day that that child would be born, abortion would be legal, especially if there were some abnormalities or consequences related to the pregnancy. Now, this last week, the state of Virginia, not to be outdone, the state of Virginia, the legislator has, has been working on a bill that the governor has already endorsed, and he described it this way, that, that not only would that same allowance be given to be able to take the life of a child right up into delivery, but potentially even after delivery, The governor described a situation where perhaps there was complications or abnormalities and the baby would be kept comfortable while the doctors and the parents decided what should be done. Now, this kind of thinking is not new in human history. In fact, the church in the first century, in the second century, What became known among the Roman Empire as they were the strange ones, the odd ones, the different ones who would actually take these babies, unwanted, that were simply laid out and left and abandoned, exposed to die. And the Christians were the ones that would take them in and take them home and love them and raise them as their own. So it's not new to human society, although it is it is terribly abnormal. As I was thinking about this in the midst of, our, of uh, what we've been talking about in the book of Philippians, the, the, the uh, free indeed, we've called that series, that, that the freeing of the gospel from our own guilt, our own shame, and even the normal patterns of how we live and what we trust as compared to those who do not know and believe in and trust our savior and our god they are without hope and without god in the world and and what is their trust and how do we how do we scramble and make a way for ourselves and yet those whom the Son has set free, or free indeed. And Paul, though he's in a Roman confinement, is freer than anybody else. Understands his freedom in Christ, set free, delivered, perhaps more than anybody else. Now, in that setting, I'm thinking in this, in this situation, as this is, is, has uh, arisen in our culture and... and uh, um, Interesting thing about it, the, the, the calls for consequences. As the governor of Virginia said these things, there was a media uproar. And then as I watched this week, the, the focus shifted. It changed. There was a huge distraction that emerged. All kinds of calls now are going out from even within the governor's own political party that he must resign, he must step down. This has gone too far. Not because of what he said about that abortion bill, but because of some things he said or did or participated in that showed up in his medical school yearbook from 34 years ago. He did some things that were racially prejudiced and offensive, and though in those circles in Virginia 34 years ago, maybe it was perceived as funny and allowable, it certainly goes against the society grain today. And for those things, from 35 years ago, he must step down. Not because of this devaluing of the preciousness of human life today, this week. That caught my attention. It's worth thinking about. And, and where, what parallel can I, I, I described to you uh, first century history, what the church experienced and what the church did in the first century in the midst of that kind of a mindset that existed there as well. But but where do we find something like this in the Bible? And we do. When Israel first entered Into the land, when when God has brought them out of Egypt and is preparing them in the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, preparing them for entrance into this land that He has given them, He warns them: When you go there, do not follow the people of the land. He says it this way in Leviticus chapter twenty. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. If the people of the land do not do not at all clo- do at all close their eyes to that man, if they 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 don't do anything about it, they don't confront it, they allow it. When." One gives his own children to Moloch and do not put him to death. Then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and I will cut them off from among their people. He says in Deuteronomy, do not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you any who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That's what he's talking about when, he, when, when this, 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 this giving your, your child to Moloch. It was giving one's own child, one's own baby, to pass through the fires as a burnt sacrifice to this false god, Moloch. Now where does this come from? How could this be? I, I describe that, that there's a normal protective instinct within us that we all recognize. How could it be that people could arrive at the place where that would be feasible, a possible alternative, normal, accepted? What kind of view of God God would it be that a God who would demand that from us that that tears against our own heart inside? What what what, what kind of bargain? What 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 kind of hopelessness that my situation is so desperate that we would consider doing that? And yet he warns them, it's something that as it occurs and as it sinks in, as a culture goes this way, it's easy to learn it from them. He says, do not learn to follow the practices of the Canaanites in the land. It'll be easy to do, and it became easy to do. For instance, Solomon As Solomon is is creating alliances with the surrounding nations, he's creating these alliances by marrying the daughters of the kings and the rulers of these other countries. And he brings these foreign wives to Jerusalem, and yet they miss home. And they miss church like it was then. They miss their temple as it was then. And their own God that they worshipped in the lands which they came from. And so Solomon, trying to be a good husband, says, Well, you know... We we, we can't do that here in Jerusalem because this is Jerusalem. This is the Lord's city. But maybe I could make altars for them across on the hill to the east. Maybe there I could make altars for them where they could worship to their gods. And that's what they did. They, they, They offered offerings to their gods, including the god Moloch, on these altars outside Jerusalem. And could it be in the midst of that, as they offered offerings to Baal, to Moloch, that the offerings to Moloch included the offering of child sacrifice, could one of Solomon's own children have been offered on those altars? It got so bad that eventually one of the causes of the Assyrian captivity that just as God said the land, the land would vomit out its previous inhabitants, so there came a time when God could not his, allow his own people to live there any longer. And the Assyrians came and carried away the northern kingdom into captivity. And one of the reasons for that was in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 17, because they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and sold themselves to evil. They sold themselves away. They offered up their own children. It's inconceivable. And yet, somehow enters our understanding in the midst of some difficulty or desperate situation. We can't imagine how we could get through this. It somehow becomes feasible to give the life of one's own child. And it's not new to humanity it's old. It's been from there even to now. This particular horror ebbed and flowed. It pinnacled in the southern nation, the nation of Judah, under the reigns of kings Ahaz and Manasseh. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, Ahaz, it says, was 20 years old when he reigned. And he reigned for 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel who had already been carried away. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnon, and he burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. If you you walk along the ramparts of of the southern side of the wall of the old city, you look down into this beautiful valley beautiful green valley and there's a a pool down there there are gardens there's a park there today but underneath there are tombs and in that valley that was the valley of Hinnan or the valley of Gehenna that Jesus describes as a smoldering constantly ongoing burning garbage dump and it was there what Jesus compared to hell that was the place Where the altar to Moloch stood, and where Ahaz offered even his own sons to this demon behind that idol that so hated humanity that this was one more way not only to kill them, but to destroy the hearts of those who lived and to tear away at their souls. Make no mistake, we have a spiritual enemy which is an active, hateful rebellion against God and for that reason hates humanity made in God's image. And that's what's going on here in this Old Testament idolatry and New Testament idolatry that would lead people in this direction. In fact, in in 2 Kings 21, describing Ahaz's son Manasseh, the son that survived, he reigns for 50 years, he's probably the singularly most evil and wicked king in all of Israel or Judah's history. You could debate that, but certainly he's in the running. It says that he burned his son as an offering, and he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums, and consulted the dead. Instead of the living God, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. That's King Manasseh. And don't miss the fact that all of this is not merely a cultural practice. It is demonically inspired. And because of it, the Lord hands Judah over to Babylon as well. The reason given in Jeremiah 32 is because they built the high places of Baal Baal in the valley of, of Hinnon to offer their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor, God says, did it ever enter my mind that they would do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. The closest God ever comes to suggesting such a thing is in Genesis 22. And maybe that caused some confusion for some that read on the surface and did not understand the story that, well, didn't God at one time even ask Abraham to offer his son? Maybe from there they made the leap into the demonic idols of the land. But remember, when Abraham took Isaac, not as a baby, helpless child, but as an adult son, there's a picture being painted. And Abraham and Isaac go together to the mountains of Moriah, There. The mountains in Jerusalem, where the temple would eventually be built. And there on those mountains of Jerusalem, Abraham prepares. He raises the knife, ready to plunge it into his son, whom God has said his only son to offer him as a sacrifice. And God stops him. Because God will not allow Abraham to try to do for God what only God must do for us. It is God who on those same mountains of Moriah, the hill of Jerusalem, that God himself would give his own son for us, for our guilt, for our shame. We could not, at any price that we could try to pay, we could never appease the judgment of our guilt. That God did for us in an infinite sacrifice that covers all my sin, all my shame. It's contrary to God that we would ever do such a thing. He alone, his son willingly laid down his life for us. That's God's character. And so his character must condemn this, and it condemns those. Remember the law, that, that verse I read to you out of Leviticus. Not only those who would do this, but any who would allow this, any who would turn a blind eye to it and say, huh, I guess that's okay for them. No, no, God says that's going to be required. Because that law is not merely a set of rules that God makes. It's an it's a expression of his character. All of God's revelation is showing us what our God is like. This is his character. And if that's true, and that is God's character still, then it presses the question to me how much time could we have? He expelled the northern kingdom out in 722. He expelled Judah, the southern kingdom, out for the same reason. How much time would he give the world today? As we do such horrible things, as we play God ourselves, you look out at the genetic engineering and the the efforts that we would do to genetically recreate humanity so that we could live forever, that we could have everlasting life, that we could create human bodies that would be organ banks for us, that we could keep replacing parts like you would on an old Ford truck this this is humanity that God has made in his own image now don't get me wrong there may there could be some cataclysmic judgment coming eventually for the world there is that's what God's word says but, but even in our society we could experience it all the sooner but we're already experiencing it sin and human rebellion always has its consequences and we are already praying, paying the price as a people as a society as a culture our own children as they grow up they wonder are their lives worth it are they worth living partly they wonder that because we've told them that they are merely in evolutionary development we've shown them that as a culture that some lives are not worth living I was moved this week there's a video in the midst of all this other stuff going on there's news coming up because of that news and these this focus the the pushing pushing abortion to to new fewer boundaries that uh, there was a video that went by, viral i don't know if any of you saw it uh, frank stevens he's a he's a special olympian he is a um, adult man, and he sat there in this, in this um, congressional testimony hearing about a year and a half ago, and, and he gave as a man living with Down syndrome, he said, I may not be a research scientist, but nobody knows more about living with Down syndrome than I do. Certainly other people who live with Down syndrome know just as much as Frank does, but he says, nobody knows more than I do. This is my life. This is my experience. He says, I am a man with Down syndrome, and my life is worth living. And that congressional hearing room broke out into applause. It was, it's, it's a wonderfully moving testimony. I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, not now, later, later, maybe during the Super Bowl. Because it doesn't matter, you could search for Frank Stevens' testimony. It'll move you, it'll remind you how life matters. You see, we've told our children as a culture that some lives are not worth living. But God says differently you are not merely a chance product of evolution or biology. God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knit you together in your mother's wombs. God's eyes saw your unformed substance, and it wasn't just tissue, it was you, it was your substance. In his book already were written the days formed for you before there were any of them yet. I'm quoting from Psalm 139. It goes on to say, How precious are your thoughts concerning me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I count them, they're more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. I wonder, what's the psalmist doing there poetically? When I'm sleeping, I'm not thinking about God. I might be dreaming about something, but I'm probably not thinking about God. And yet, while I'm not thinking about God, you're thinking of me. I wake up, and you're still thinking of me. His eye is on Us, no matter where our eyes wander. That's a significant declaration because earlier the psalmist is asking, where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. That even in the darkness I cannot hide because the night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light to you. For you even knew me inside the darkness of my mother's womb. Where there was no light at all, there you saw me before the days of CAT scan. You knew how many fingers and toes I had. You knew if it was a boy or a girl, when nobody else knew. You see me, you know me. Psalm 139 says that you cannot hide from God because God does not want you to hide from him. Just as he searched out Adam and Eve in the garden, so he searches after us and he pursued us. Even when we we rebel and hide, he searches us out. Why? Because God made you to love you. That's it. God made you to love you. To be in relationship with you. Psalm 139 echoes the question of Job chapter 7 verse 17. Job says, what is man? What is humanity that you make so much of him? That you make so much of us that you set your heart on him? What is humanity? God, why do you care? God, why do you bother? And in the midst of pain and suffering and hardship, maybe Job is almost expressing, God, why don't you just leave us alone? And God cannot leave you alone. Like that cat could not leave her kittens alone. But much more than that. It's because he loves us. Psalm 8 expands on that question. We read it earlier, so as we, I'd, I'd, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 8. I've been referring to a lot of verses here and there. I knew I'd be bouncing all over, but but I want us to stop and and look here. Psalm 8, if you're using the church Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 450. Psalm 8, we read from verse 1, so I'm going to jump in now at verse 4 and catch Job's same question. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man or the son of humanity that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand and have put all things under his feet. And yet as good as that sounds, we have to say it's not all ponies and roses yet. It's not all like that. In fact, everything is not under subjection. Everything is not as it should be. Everything is not with an orderly, wonderful, peaceful, shalom creation. With humanity as God's regent representatives over it, and it all is in harmony. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. And yet Hebrews chapter 2 interprets Psalm 8 for us. So now, looking at Psalm 8, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, page 1001. But it'll throw you a curve because at the top of page 1001, there is no page number, but you'll find it. Hebrews chapter 2, back up to verse 7. We'll read our way in. You'll see how how he's quoting Psalm 8 here, and then he comments on it. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The psalmist almost says, next to the angels, it's us. There's there's nothing above us except the angels themselves. Look at why is it that you so lift and exalt and honor humanity? Now, in putting everything in subjection under his feet, He left nothing outside his control, yet, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't yet see everything in subjection to humanity. It's not all going well yet, but, verse 9, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, he should perfect the founder of their salvation, make him perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So we do not see it yet, but we see Jesus. Could I summarize for you? You're saying, please. You've thrown a lot of things out there, and I don't know how you're going to put all of that together. Let me put it all together this way. We don't yet see what will be in God's full plan for us, but we do see Jesus, who joined us in our humanity in order to join us to his glory, to free us from the power of death and living in this culture of death, and the devil and slavery to evil and sin. We see Jesus who delivers us, who rescues us from the death of humanity in sin that we see lived out in history and in the present. Where people will do horrendous things trying to make some bargain with the devil or their own lives at great cost, tearing out even their own hearts in desperation thinking that maybe this is what I must do to survive, not even fully realizing the cost of it to our own souls. And yet there is rescue from all of that, and his name is Jesus. If you ever wonder about your value before God, Among all of his creation, his value of you and you and I in humanity. Remember this. Jesus did not come for an orca. He did not come as a tree. He did not come in the glory of an angel. He came for you and me. He came like us and for us to be with us. Forever, There is your value. Oh, all the environment that he puts us over to be responsible for and to be his caretakers in God's character means the environment becomes very important, perhaps more important to many of us than it presently is. And yet Jesus did not come as an orca. He did not come as a tree. He didn't even come in the glory of an angel. He came for you and me. That's what we need to remember. Are you special? Do you matter? You are not merely a product of evolutionary chance or a biological experiment. You are made in the very image of God. And every one of us, that image is imperfect. That image is, is fallen and broken in various ways. And, it te- and, our, and our hearts cry out and it tears at us. And we, we act out that desperation and a seeming, a feeling separation from God as if we were left on our own. And being left to our own, we make some horrible choices. And yet... God sent his son right into the middle of this wretched humanity with us, for us, because you are that loved and that precious to God. Every one of us. So then, let's go back to Manasseh and the evil that he did even offering his own son in some desperate act to try to appease something in order to gain some advantage or help. He offers his own son even. God has had enough of him. And he sends the Assyrians early to give Manasseh an early ticket to jail in Babylon while the Assyrians still ruled Babylon at that time. And they're away in prison in Babylon Before everybody else, Manasseh calls on the Lord. First, that's amazing. What is even more amazing, it shouldn't be maybe, but it is, is that God heard him and God answered him and God lifted him and restored him. And God set him, God released him from that prison and God set him back in Jerusalem again. You know what Manasseh does? He clears the land of all the idols that he had set up. He purged the temple mount itself from the idols, the demonic idols that he had established there. He clears all of that away and it becomes rubble in the valley of of Gehenna. And he instructs the whole nation that they must only worship the Lord, the true and the living God. Now a lot of water has gone under the bridge. It doesn't stick when he dies after a couple of years and his son takes his place. His son continues in the wickedness that he had taught him from before. God only gives him two years because God's patience, God's suffering, God's long-suffering does run out. He gives him two years. But after those two years of Ammon offering to Moloch again, children sacrificed, after those two years, Ammon is dead and Josiah. Eight-year-old king. An eight-year-old lad becomes king of Israel. And God leads that lad along. Grows him in his word of how it is that a man can know and walk with the true and the living God. And Josiah does. And he leads his people in a temporary granted, but in his generation, perhaps the greatest revival in Old Testament history. Following out of such a dark era those who would trust God and follow Him. Look what God will do. There's something for us there. In the midst of a dark hour, in the midst of horrible things going on and being endorsed and even celebrated. Yeah, we need to shine light on it. In the midst of this week, there there were three things that I noticed. First of all, you couldn't escape it in the news, the celebration of the murder of babies. Safe, rare, and legal has turned to something else. They can no longer hide behind that slogan. Murder, first of all, the murder of babies and the horrendousness of it within our culture, and we've got to guard our hearts against the influences of that, as well as seek to protect others around us from the damage even they would do to their own souls and hearts. And secondly, how political turns come so quickly and distraction tries to move things out of center stage that yes, that governor, he must step down, but not because of that horror, because of something that he did that doesn't fit our standards today, 35 years ago. Dredge that up. That's the reason. That's the issue. And then, the third thing I caught that we ought to find equally offensive and probably do not. President Trump, in responding to the governor of Virginia, in referring both to his his positive words about this abortion law as well as these racial prejudice things he did 34 or 35 years ago, our president said, these things are unforgivable. I'm sorry, Mr. President, but I beg to differ. Because God says differently. God says your mistakes of 34 or 35 years ago are not unforgivable. And God says that even the most horrendous things that Manasseh or Bob or you would do are not unforgivable. That is a cheapening of the grace of God that he gave his own son for. You know that God loves you, that he made you to love you and be in relationship with you. And you know that in Jesus, nothing is unforgivable. And that's what we need to remind the people around us about. That's what we need to remind is People are talking about this news in the culture. How about this? How about instead of starting with the abortion topic, how about if you say, you know, something in the news really struck me. Something President Trump said really struck me. I really disagreed with it. And their minds in our culture we know what part of the country we live in. In our minds and our culture, they're going to go to all kinds of things that President Trump has said that they disagree with Are wondering which one. And they'll probably be surprised that the one you focus on is that he dared to say, this man dared to say, that something would be unforgivable. I take, I, 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 I take deep disagreement with that. I know from my own experience, you know from your own experience that nothing is truly unforgivable. And we need to remind ourselves of that. That's what this table is for. And we need to remind one another that nothing is unforgivable. You need to remind the the people that you'll be in conversation with that the news of the day might be an opportunity to have that conversation. Maybe the president just gave us another opportunity. I like it because it's one that will be a surprise. It'll turn the conversation in an unexpected direction and who knows what can happen. I said this table is a reminder. This table is also an opportunity. As those who are serving come forward, I want to extend that invitation to you.